For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God reveal light and life through his word by his spirit so that we may believe and have eternal life. You may be seated. What is the greatest Christmas gift you ever received? Greatest Christmas gift you ever received. What comes to mind? I'm sure there's a wide range of responses in a room like this. But just take a moment and think about what is it that made that gift so valuable to you? What was it about that gift that stood out to you, that made such an impression upon you? I remember my grandma saying that when she was younger, she got a, some nuts and a few oranges, and that was really exciting to her when she was young for Christmas. She had lived through the Dust Bowl, uh, and that sort of thing changes your perspective and what you value. I remember when I was uh, eight or nine, getting my first Nintendo Entertainment System. I must have been 90 or 91 being so excited on that particular Christmas morning to open it up and bust out Super Mario Brothers and get out Duck Hunt and just be mystified that the, the gun was being registered on the screen and then frustrated that the dog was mocking me for my horrible aim, jumping up behind that grass and laughing at me. Maybe it was something that has particularly significant value to you. Maybe it has sentimental value. Maybe it was something small, a, a small token, but the sort of thing that someone gave to you and the person that gave it to you now perhaps has passed away. And maybe that item now has a unique value to you. Things can be invested with great value when they carry personal or, or emotional significance for you. And maybe it was a gift that was really meaningful, like an engagement ring that was given to you as a token of love that was received on Christmas. Or maybe it was meaningful because of what it symbolizes. Maybe your favorite gift was something like a limited edition item, something that was just really hard to get your hands on, and someone gave it to you. And so because it's so unique, because it's so rare, it has higher value for you. Uh, maybe your gift was something that you didn't know that you needed until it was given to you, and now you use it all the time. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that you might be valuing uniquely a particular gift that you were received. Maybe it's just like a really well-constructed quality item. Or maybe it was something that was uh, expressed a lot of personal thought on behalf of the person that gave it to you. Or maybe the first thing that came to your mind was like the most expensive thing that you got. There's nothing wrong with this. But carefully consider what was it about that gift that you received that made it so valuable to you. As we're going through John's gospel here in this season of Advent, we've been thinking carefully about Christmas, about the incarnation about the significance of God taking on flesh, and we have come to the most famous verse in the Bible. No doubt, without question, 
And this verse is about a gift. Uh, It is about the greatest gift, of course, that gift that every other gift, no matter how great or valuable, was only a faint shadow. A gift from the loving creator, which was addressed to a world who was set in rebellion against him. It couldn't possibly bear any more personal significance for you. It couldn't possibly be any more unique, any more symbolic, or of greater cost, or of higher worth, or more fitting for your greatest need. And yet, so many people reject this offer of this gift. Why is that? Well, we'll think some more about that today as we get through this passage, but for now, I want to suggest that our big idea this morning for this passage is this. Reject death and darkness and receive God's perfect gift of light and life. Reject death and darkness and receive God's perfect gift of light and life. We'll take this in three sections. First, we'll talk about this gift. It is unique, it is priceless, and it is perfect. Second, we'll focus on the fact that you need this gift from 17 and 18. And then last, why you might want to reject this gift, verses 19 through 21. That's the plan. Before we get into it, let's pray together. Father, would you calm our hearts and minds this morning? Uh, Help us to focus in the midst of such a busy season on a, a verse that is just so well known that we take it for granted. Would you help us this morning uh, to slow down and carefully consider this verse and all of its implications so that it might land on us in a fresh way, a meaningful way this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, this gift is unique, priceless, and perfect. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For as well known and familiar as this verse is, it's often heard actually outside of its context. And so we will benefit this morning to slow down and just look at it carefully. This is prone to be misunderstood. A couple of quick notes just to orient ourselves as we're thinking about this passage. First, there is some degree of confusion about whether these words are from the mouth of Jesus or if they were added in by the author of this gospel, John the Apostle. Are these Jesus' words or are these the words of John? Now, in your verse, you might have, or your copy of God's Word, you might have quotation marks uh, or perhaps even this section is in red letters which would tell you that the editors think that this is a quotation from Jesus, but quotation marks weren't a thing when this was written. And so we're, we're interpreting and trying to figure out where does Jesus' speech stop and where does John's commentary begin? There's good reason to think that Jesus himself is not speaking here, but rather it's the author John now speaking, adding some commentary after this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
We can't know for sure, but I tend to lean that way. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter too much because either way, what we have here is a profound statement on the infinite, eternal, marvelous scope of salvation. Red letters from Jesus don't have any unique weight that your black letters don't also bear. It's an opportunity to affirm that. This is the eternal word, and all of these words equally bear the weight of God. So because this verse is so familiar, because this is so timeless, we need to slow down for a minute and think carefully. Uh, Specifically, there's about two of these words, two of the words in this passage, and the first word is so. What does so mean? What does so mean? Our ESV translation, which is great, leans heavily on the Revised Standard Version from 1950, which stuck very closely to the King James Version from 1611. So it's an old way of speaking. It's very poetic, and it has a great rhythm to it, for God so loved the world. But it lands on our modern ears in a way that's different than it would have been understood by the original audience. The English language changes a lot over time. This phrase would have originally been understood in an an older Middle English as this, for this is how God loved the world. It is explaining how God loved the world by sending his only son. And that's a faithful way to translate the Greek behind this as well. Answering the question, how did God love the world? Like so. God so loved the world. But when we hear that today, we might be thinking of it referring to the degree of God's love. Like he loves the world so much that he sent his only son. Now, of course, God loves the world a great deal. Don't mean to undermine that at all. But I take this verse to actually be communicating a demonstration of God's love. So while the ESV is accurate, it might be a little unclear for us in 2023. Uh, In fact, your ESV might have a little footnote there at the bottom that indicates another way that that might be suggested that you would read this. It might say, for this is how God loved the world. And I actually take that to be closer to the intended meaning of the original author. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, does a great job of translating this for us in a way that states it clearly, if less poetically, like this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I recognize that that is not nearly as powerful as saying, for God so loved the world. There's no way that it's ever going to be erased from our cultural memory, uh, most likely. Which brings us, actually, to the second word that we need to clarify. World. World. What does the word world mean? And to understand what an author intends by a word, we need to see how he is using it in other places. And most of the time, an overwhelming amount of time, when John uses the word world, he is referring to humanity in rebellion against God. And you can actually see this very clearly in chapter 3, verse 19, in our passage this morning, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is a world that is characterized by darkness. In other words, God didn't think the world was so great that he thought, well, maybe I'll pop in for a visit. Rather, in light of the righteous glory of a perfect God, the world is a dark wasteland, which is inhabited by his creatures who are in sinful rebellion against them. 
just consider those two verses right before this. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which we covered last Sunday. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Of course, this reference to Numbers chapter 21. They were being provided for. Israel has been uh, freed from Egypt, wandering in the wasteland, and God is providing for them, giving them food, providing for them, carrying them towards the Holy Land, and yet they begin to grumble and complain against God. And so God brings judgment. And yet, in His grace... God provides a singular way of salvation from death, which was coming from these serpents. Look to the serpent, lift it up, and live. It's a brilliant picture of the situation that Jesus steps into. The world is dark. It is a world of death. It is a world that is in rebellion and ignorant repudiation of God's love. This is the world that God loves. And so D.A. Carson puts it well when he says, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. So when it says that God loved the world, we should understand that to mean this. The Father sent the Son to offer himself as the solution for the sin of humanity in rebellion against him. Just as that serpent was lifted up to bear away the venom which came from the serpents in the desert, Jesus must be lifted up on the cross to bear away the sin which came through the serpent in the garden. God loved a sinful humanity in rebellion against him by, in this way, sending not an image of a serpent, but the image of himself, the image of the invisible God, so that whoever would turn and trust in him, receive him as a solution for the predicament of sin, would not suffer the consequences of that sin, which is death, but would be graciously given abundant life, which begins now and extends into eternity. Do you see the magnitude then of this gift? This is a demonstration of God's love that was not inevitable because we are just so lovable. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But he bestowed this love upon us freely, not out of obligation, but purely because he is so gracious. This gift of love is unique. This gift of love is priceless. This gift of love is perfect. It's unique. It is a -a one-of-a-kind gift. Uh, There is literally nothing more rare than the substance of God himself. Jesus is, of course, God's only son. And though you and I might become children of God by adoption, the son is properly spoken of as the unique, one-of-a-kind, only son in that sense. He is the only one who descended from heaven. Uh, You and I, again, can be born again spiritually from above, but the Son's eternal origin is heaven. And so as Son, He is eternally begotten of the Father, as we've already sung this morning. And please remember that we're using words of analogy here. God did not physically give birth to Jesus, despite what you might have heard from a Latter-day Saint, 
this gift of salvation in the Son is as unique as it gets. And the more unique a gift is, well, the more valuable it becomes. And this gift is priceless. This gift is priceless, in part because it came at such a cost. Now, it's not as if the Father lost the Son when He gave Him to the world, but there was a unique kind of parting between the Father and the Son when He came to dwell among us. Jesus was distanced from the glorious existence that he had enjoyed in that eternal, glorious communion with the Father. He mentions himself, how much he desires that glory again in John chapter 17 in that prayer. God himself gave himself to be lifted up on a cross, to suffer in the person of Christ, to suffer the pangs of death, to suffer hell, to be poured out like water, as Psalm 22 talks about it to have his heart melted in his chest like wax, to be pierced and shamed by the world that he loves. And his pain would be greater than all of our pains put together. And yet, he loved the world in this way by entering into the suffering of this world to take on the suffering of this world for the sake of this world. The majesty, the worth of this gift is impossible to compare it to any other gift. Uh, any other gift, just think about whatever gift it was that you, that you thought of as being the greatest Christmas gift that you were ever given. Now hold it up against God freely taking away the burden of your sin and giving you life eternal and just watch that gift in comparison fade like the twinkle of your Christmas lights would fade as the morning sun dawns. There is no greater gift than this. This gift is priceless for you because it is perfect. This gift is perfect in its quality, just the very sheer value of this gift. God purchasing his church with his own blood, the precious blood of God. But it's perfect also in another sense. This gift is perfect because it is effective perfectly. It is the once-for-all only gift that you would ever need. It is the gift to end all other gifts. There is no need for any other gift, any other means of escaping death, any other means of gaining eternal life. This is it. He didn't love the world and send it a DIY kit to figure it out. He purchased and secured everything from beginning to end that you need. Just trust, look, and live. But the gift is also perfect because it is the perfect match for what you need. In other words, it's not just a luxury. This is a staple item for you. It is a necessity. You need this gift. Verses 17 and 18 point out why. Second, you need this gift. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus wasn't sent into the world to bring condemnation because the condemnation was already there. The condemnation was already set. 
So he came to save, not to bring judgment in that regard. But if someone does not trust in God's solution for sin, he or she is condemned already. This is what this says. Their rejection of Christ is simply a confirmation of their condemnation. It's a doubling down on the rebellion against God. The light didn't come to bring more darkness, obviously, but to show us, by contrast, what darkness already existed in the world. This is the purpose of the light. It's like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. The condemnation, which was that that venom of the serpents, is already coursing through our veins. There's no escaping it. It is only by looking with the eye of faith in the sun that we can gain the anti-venom as it was. And whoever does not already believe is already condemned because he has not accepted God's solution for salvation and sin. To perish, as this passage speaks, is to die justly condemned, suffering the wrath of a just God. Our statement of faith says this, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, the whole of humanity stands justly condemned by God as rebellious sinners and therefore worthy of eternal punishment. And so friend, if you have not trusted Christ, you must hear this message as a warning that you stand condemned already. In the final analysis, you're not going to be judged based on whether or not you're better than Hitler or even just incrementally better than your neighbor. You stand condemned because you are a sinner by your very nature and also because of your own choice. It is who you are. It is who you are as part of this world that God loves. It is an inescapable reality. And so to stand before a holy God, your righteousness would actually need to exceed that of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, who was that teacher of Israel. It's an impossible task, like trying, struggling to pour wine out of an empty cup. Your righteousness must come from outside of you. You don't have the resources So when God gave the Son, the only Son, this is what it means, that he was sent for this purpose, to be condemned in place of whosoever would believe. He was sent in order to be set aside, to be condemned, to be delivered into the hands of those executioners. This is why we sing, in my place condemned he stood. This spotless son of God, this spotless lamb of God would come to reclaim a ruined, guilty, vile, rebellious, helpless world of sinners (laughs) like you and like me. And this gift is for you. You need this gift, and this gift is available to you. Whoever will believe, this is what it says. This is a very free offer. There is no one in here who does not count. Uh, No matter if you've wrecked your own life, you've wrecked the lives of others, your life has been defined by lust or anger or pride or greed, 
The only thing that qualifies you to be a target of God's love is not your lovability. The only prerequisite condition that you could possibly match and bring to the table is the fact that you are a part of this rebellious world, which you all are. If you feel the venom of the snake coursing through your veins, this gift is for you. Look and live. Brothers and sisters, I hope you feel the comfort of these words. For those who have been born again from above, those who trust in the Son of God's solution for salvation, this is a balm for your greatest fear. Your greatest fear. You shall not perish. Because it is as if you have already died. This is what we find elsewhere in Scripture, that you have been crucified with Christ and he lives in you. And so the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in this Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So there is a sense in which the Christian has already dealt with death and gotten it out of the way. The sting of death is gone because the grave has been defanged. Death is still, it's a fearful thing. Be honest about it. But if through faith you are united with Christ, you only have life to look forward to. Abundant life that begins now and extends into eternity before the glorious, joyful presence of our Creator to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so when you hear this gospel, you think there's no way that this could be true. This is so, this good news couldn't be gooder. Why would anybody turn down this free offer of pardon from sin and life with our loving creator? You have to wonder, why would someone reject this gift? That's what verses 19 through 21 explain. Third, why you might want to reject this gift. Verse 19, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So if you've ever wanted to reject this gift of eternal life, according to scripture, it's because you love the darkness more than light. What do you think of that analysis, that divine analysis of your own heart? Does that at all sound familiar to your own experience and your own testimony before you became a Christian, perhaps, of wanting to love the dark more than you loved the light, that you formally rejected Christ because of your affirmation of darkness? You know what it's like to have the lights flipped on when you're trying to sleep? Uh, early in the morning. It's December. It is dark. It is early. And yet mom or dad comes in and just blasts the light, just flipping on the light switch. That that 60-watt bulb seems like the light of 10,000 suns. Turn it back off. Because when you're in the darkness and those lights flip on, you turn into Dracula. (laughs) Your eyes have to be adjusted to the darkness. And so your natural reaction to that darkness is repulsion. 
It hurts your eyes to see the light when you're in the darkness. Is that not a perfect picture of what happens when the lights flip on and you see your sinful condition? To hiss and to put your blanket up over your head. And we can see this playing out and perhaps most clearly in the midst of the sexual revolution that we are currently uh, embedded in. You know, this anger plays out on a personal level. When you bring light into someone's life and they say, what are you talking about? I can't shack up with my girlfriend. It's none of your business. But it also plays out in a broader level across the culture. We're being encouraged to reject the light of nature and the light of scripture in order to ease the conscience of those who would want us to turn those lights back off. The rage and the anger of some who are deeply embedded in the LGBTQIA plus ideology is a symptom of loving the darkness more than the light. Christians are are sued. They are being brought into court to be condemned for affirming what nature and scripture both teach. This is where we are. We used to be able to argue about what was light and what was dark, but now we're being forcefully encouraged to pretend that there is no such thing as dark. In fact, everything is light, and the only thing that's dark is saying that there is darkness. And here's why. We hate moral correction and ethical judgment. We don't want our dark works exposed to the light of truth. Now, friends, before you get high and mighty, bring this back to your own life, even as a Christian. This is no excuse to be offensive or judgmental towards others. Because like Nicodemus who approaches Jesus at night, it might take your own eyes a while to adjust to the light. Listen to me now. Your natural reaction to the light when it pierces the dark is to hide away. This is why we need a supernatural reaction to that light. And for this, we simply go back to verses 1 through 15. This interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus is the the very thing that we need. We are dependent upon God to take merciful divine intervention and to give us hearts that would love and embrace the truth rather than flee and hate it. We need a second birth from above. So if you're embracing the light this morning, it is not because you are more humble or more smart or more righteous than anyone else. It is only because you've been given eyes to see. The Christian's response to the revelatory light of God's truth on our sin ought to be, as our brother Jim prayed for us earlier, confession and repentance. Uh, As born-again Christians, we ought to turn from our sin, not back to it. We should actually love being corrected, difficult as it sounds, love being corrected as God's children and have a very careful space uh, preserved for brothers and sisters in the Lord to help us to keep us from being blinded by our own sin or sneaking back into the darkness because there is still, for Christians, a stupefying and intoxicating power of sin. Don't buy the lie that this only exists in the world outside, that this doesn't exist in the church. Friends, brothers and sisters, we are all in danger of becoming drowsy 
And we need each other to keep pointing to and witnessing to and testifying for each other to the light of truth. A confession is good for the soul. Why might someone reject the gospel? So on the surface, we hear a number of reasons, maybe something like this. It would be intolerant for God to only provide one solution for sin. Therefore, I reject the gospel. Or a loving, powerful God wouldn't dare allow evil and suffering in his world, and so I'm just going to reject the whole thing. Or my God would never send anyone to hell, and so I will reject the God of Scripture. Or Christians are hypocrites. Uh, They say they hate sin, and yet they still do sin, and so I'm just going to reject the whole thing. Or maybe science has now proven that we no longer need God to explain the existence of nature. Those are all very serious discussions that I would be happy to enter into. Conversations can be had and should be had about those things. We don't want to dismiss the emotional weight and significance of someone who's wrestling with those questions in good faith. But in our honest moments, we recognize that those arguments are all just the blankets that we pull over our head because we love the darkness more than the light. Our reception or rejection of God's gospel isn't ultimately a question of the intellect. It's a question of love. It's a question of love. God loves you. In the pew, you. Specifically, you. And he showed you his love by taking that condemnation so that you would not perish but have eternal life. The hero has died for the villain. No greater gift of love has ever or could ever even be imagined. The gift of salvation is unique, it is priceless, and it is perfect, and it is a gift that you need. Now the question is this, what is your greater love? Do you love the light or do you love the dark? Make the call. Reject death and darkness and receive God's perfect gift of light and life. And may all praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.